The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams The podcast versions of the original Facebook Live readings during the coronavirus outbreak by Matthew Ogden, The Bearded Wit. Please bear in mind that as Facebook Live recordings, these are rough and ready, there are mistakes, there are a few trip-ups here and there, and there is laughter from the reader as he goes through and follows the humour himself along with you, the listener. We hope you enjoy listening to these and share liberally. Part 7 Ten light years away, Gag Halfront jacked up his smile by several notches. As he watched the picture on his vision screen, relayed across the sub-ether from the bridge of the Vogon ship, he saw the final shreds of the Heart of Gold's force shield ripped away and the ship itself vanish in a puff of smoke. Good, he thought. The end of the last stray survivors of the demolition he had ordered on the planet Earth, he thought. The final end of this dangerous, to the psychiatric profession, and subversive, also to the psychiatric profession, experiment to find the question to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything, he thought. There would be some celebration with his fellows tonight, and in the morning they would meet again their unhappy, bewildered, and highly profitable patients, secure in the knowledge that the meaning of life would not now be, once and for all, well and truly sorted out, he thought. Family's always embarrassing, isn't it? said Ford to Zaphod as the smoke began to clear. He paused. He looked about. Where's Zaphod? he said. Arthur and Trillian looked about blankly. They were pale and shaken and didn't know where Zaphod was. Marvin? said Ford. Where's Zaphod? Where's Marvin? The robot's corner was empty. The ship was utterly silent. It lay in thick black space. Occasionally it rocked and swayed. Every instrument was dead. Every vision screen was dead. They consulted the computer. It said, I regret I have been temporarily closed to all communication. Meanwhile, here is some light music. They turned off the light music. They searched every corner of the ship in increasing bewilderment and alarm. Everywhere was dead and silent. Nowhere was there any trace of Zaphod or of Marvin. One of the last areas they checked was the small bay in which the Nutrimatic uh, machine was located. On the delivery plate of the Nutrimatic drinks synthesizer was a small tray on which sat three bone china cups and saucers, a bone china jug of milk, a silver teapot full of the best tea Arthur had ever tasted, and a small printed note saying, Wait. Ursa Minor Beta 
in some way, is one of the most appalling places in the known universe. Although it is excruciatingly rich, horrifyingly sunny, and more full of wonderfully exciting people than a pomegranate is of pips, it can hardly be insignificant that when a recent edition of Playbeing magazine headlined an article with the words, when you are tired of Ursa Minor Beta, you are tired of life, the suicide rate there quadrupled overnight. Not that there are any nights on Ursa Minor Beta. It is a west zone planet which, by an inexplicable and somewhat suspicious freak of topography, consists almost entirely of subtropical coastline. By an equally suspicious freak of temporal real realistics, it is nearly always Saturday afternoon, just before the beach bars close. No adequate explanation for this has been forthcoming from the dominant life forms on Ursa Minor Beta, who spend most of their time attempting to achieve spiritual enlightenment by running around swimming pools and inviting investigation officials from the Galactic Geotemporal Control Board to have a nice diurnal anomaly. There is only one city on Ursa Minor Beta, and that is only called a city because the swimming pools are slightly thicker on the ground there than elsewhere. If you approach Light City by air, and there is no other way of approaching it, no roads, no port facilities, if you don't fly, they don't want to see you in Light City. You will see why it has this name. Here the sun shines brightest of all, glittering on the swimming pools, shimmering on the white palm-lined boulevards, glistening on the healthy bronzed specks, moving up and down them gleaming off the villas and hazy, and hazy air pads and the beach bars and so on and so on. Most particularly, it shines on a building, a tall, beautiful building consisting of two 30-storey white towers connected by a bridge halfway up their length. The building is the home of a book and it was built here on the proceeds of an extraordinary copyright lawsuit fought between the book's editors and a breakfast cereal company. The book is a guidebook, a travel book. It is one of the most remarkable, certainly the most successful books ever to come out of the great publishing corporations of Ursa Minor. More popular than life begins at 550, Better selling than The Big Bang Theory, A Personal View by Eccentrica Golumbitz, the triple-breasted whore of Eroticon 6, and more controversial than Ulan Kalufit's latest blockbusting title, Everything You Never Wanted to Know About Sex But Have Been Forced to Find Out. And in many of the more relaxed civilizations on the outer eastern rim of the galaxy, it has long supplanted the great Encyclopedia Galactica as the standard repository of all knowledge and wisdom. For though it has many omissions and contains much that is apocryphal, it is, or is at least wildly inaccurate, it scores over the older, more pedestrian work in two important respects. First, it is slightly cheaper. And secondly, it has the words, don't panic, printed in large, friendly letters on its cover. It is, of course, that invaluable companion for all those who want to see the marvels of the known universe for less than 30 Altarian dollars a day. 
The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. If you stood with your back to the main entrance lobby of the guide offices, assuming you had landed by now and freshened up with a quick dip and a shower, and then walked east, you would pass along the leafy shade of Life Boulevard. Be amazed by the pale golden colour of the beaches stretching away to your left. Astounded by the mind surfers floating carelessly along two feet above the waves, as if this was nothing special. Surprised and eventually slightly irritated by the giant palm trees that hum tuneless nothings throughout the daylight hours. In other words, continuously. If you then walked to the end of Life Boulevard, you would enter the Lalamantine district of shops. Bolognut trees and pavement cafes, where the U.M. Beatons come to relax after a hard afternoon's relaxation on the beach. The Lalamantine district is one of the very few areas which doesn't enjoy a perpetual Saturday afternoon. Instead, it enjoys the cool of a perpetual early Saturday evening. Behind it lie the nightclubs. If, on this particular day, afternoon stretch of evening time, call it what you will, you had approached the second pavement cafe on the right, you would have seen the usual crowd of UM Beatons chatting, drinking, looking very relaxed, and casually glancing at each other's watches to see how expensive they were. You would also have seen a couple of rather dishevelled-looking hitchhikers from Algol, who had recently arrived on an Arcturan megafreighter, aboard which they had been roughing it for a few days. They were angry and bewildered to discover that here, within sight of the Hitchhiker's Guide building itself, a simple glass of fruit juice cost the equivalent of over 60 Altarian dollars. Sell out, said one of them bitterly. If at that moment you had then looked at the next table but one, you would have seen Zaphod Beeblebrox sitting and looking very startled and confused. The reason for his confusion was that five seconds earlier he had been sitting on the bridge of the starship Heart of Gold. Absolute sellout, said the voice again. Zaphod looked nervously out of the corners of his eyes at the two dishevelled hitchhikers on the next table. Where the hell was he? How had he got there? Where was his ship? His hand felt the arm of the chair on which he was sitting, and then the table in front of him. They seemed solid enough. He sat very still. How can they sit and write a guide for hitchhikers in a place like this? Continued the voice. I mean, look at it, look at it. Zaphod was looking at it. Nice place, he thought. Uh, but where and why? He fished in his pocket for his two pairs of sunglasses. In the same pocket, he felt a hard, smooth, unidentified lump of very heavy metal. He pulled it out and looked at it. He blinked at it in surprise. Where had he got that? He returned it to his pocket and put on the sunglasses, annoyed to discover that the metal object had scratched one of the lenses. 
Nevertheless, he felt much more comfortable with them on. They were a double pair of Jujanta 200 superchromatic peril sensitive sunglasses, which had been specifically designed to help people develop a relaxed attitude around danger. At the first hint of trouble, they turn totally black and thus prevent you from seeing anything that might alarm you. Apart from the scratch, the lenses were clear. He relaxed, but only a little bit. The angry hitchhiker continued to glare at his monstrously expensive fruit juice. Worst thing that ever happened to the guide, moving to Ursa Minor Beta, he grumbled. They've all gone soft. You know, I've even heard that they've created a whole electronically synthesized universe in one of their offices so they can go and research stories during the day and still go to parties in the evening. Not that day and evening mean much in this place. Ursa Minor Beta, thought Zaphod. At least he knew where he was now. He assumed that this must be his great-grandfather's doing. But why? Much to his annoyance, a thought popped into his mind. It was a very clear and very distinct thought, and he had now come to recognise these thoughts for what they were. His instinct was to resist them. They were the preordained promptings from the dark and locked-off parts of his mind. He sat still and ignored the thought, furiously. It nagged at him. He ignored it. It nagged at him. He ignored it. It nagged at him. He gave in to it. What the hell, he thought. Go with the flow. He was too tired, confused and hungry to resist. He didn't even know what the thought meant. Hello, yes, uh, Megadodo Publications, home of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the most totally remarkable book in the whole of the known universe. Can I help you? said the large pink-winged insect into one of the seventy phones lined up along the vast chrome expanse of the reception desk in the foyer of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy offices. It fluttered its wings and rolled its eyes. It glared at all the grubby people cluttering up the foyer soiling the carpets and leaving dirty hand marks on the upholstery. It adored working for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It just wished that there was some way of keeping all the hitchhikers away. Were they meant to be hanging around dirty spaceports or something? It was certain that it had read something somewhere in the book about the importance of hanging around dirty spaceports. Unfortunately, most of them seemed to come and hang around in this nice, clean, shiny foyer, immediately after hanging around in extremely dirty spaceports. And all they ever did was complain. It shivered its wings. What? it said into the phone. Yes, I passed on your message to Mr. Zarni, whoop, but I'm afraid he's too cool to see you right now. He's on an intergalactic cruise. It waved a petulant tentacle at one of the grumpy people who was angrily trying to engage its attention. The petulant tentacle directed the angry person to look at a notice on the wall to its left and not to interrupt an important phone call. 
Yes, said the insect. He is in his office, but he's on an intergalactic cruise. Thank you so much for calling. It slammed down the phone. Read the notice, it said to the angry man who was trying to complain about one of the more ludicrous and dangerous pieces of misinformation contained in the book. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is an indispensable companion to all those who are keen to make sense of life in an infinitely complex and confusing universe. For though it cannot hope to be useful or informative on all matters, it does at least make the reassuring claim that where it is inaccurate, it is at least definitively inaccurate. In cases of major discrepancy, it is always reality that got it wrong. This was the gist of the notice. It said, the guide is definitive. Reality is frequently inaccurate. This has led to some interesting consequences. For instance, when the editors of the guide were sued by the families of those who had died as, as a result of taking the entry on the planet's trowel, literally, it said, ravenous bug bladder beasts often make a very good mail for visiting tourists. Instead of, ravenous bug bladder beasts often make a very good meal of visiting tourists. They claimed that the first version of the sentence was the more aesthetically pleasing, summoned a qualified poet to testify under oath that beauty was truth, truth, beauty, and hoped thereby to prove that the guilty party in this case was life itself for failing to be either beautiful or true. The judges concurred, and in a moving speech, held that life itself was in contempt of court, and duly confiscated it all from those there present before going off to enjoy a pleasant evening's ultra-golf. Zaphod Beeblebrox entered the foyer. He strode up to the insect receptionist. Okay, he said, where's uh, Zarny Whoop? Get me Zarny Whoop! Excuse me, sir, said the insect icily. It did not care to be addressed in this manner. Zarny Whoop, get him, right? Get him now! Well, sir, snapped the fragile little creature, if you could be a little cool about it. Look, said Zaphod, I am up to here with cool, okay? I am so amazingly cool, you could keep a side of meat in me for a month. I am so hip, I have difficulty seeing over my own pelvis. Now, will you move before I blow it? Well, if you will let me explain, sir, said the insect, tapping the most petulant of all the tentacles at its disposal, I am afraid that isn't possible right now, as Mr. Zarniwoop is on an intergalactic cruise. Hell, thought Zaphod. When's he going to be back? he asked. Back, sir? He's in his office. Zaphod paused whilst he tried to sort out this particular thought in his mind. He didn't succeed. This cat's on an intergalactic cruise in his office. He leaned forward and gripped the tapping tentacle. Listen, three eyes, he said. Don't you try to outwear me. I get stranger things than you free with my breakfast cereal. Well, just who do you think you are, honey? flounced the insect, quivering its wings in rage. Zaphod Beeblebrox or something? Count the heads, said Zaphod in a low rasp. The insect blinked at him. 
it blinked at him again. You are Zephod Beeblebrax? It squeaked. Yeah, said Zephod. But don't shout it out or they'll all want one. The Zephod Beeblebrax? No, just a Zephod Beeblebrax. Didn't you hear I come in six packs? The insect rattled its tentacles together in agitation. But sir, it squealed, I, I just heard on the sub-ether radio report, it said, it said you were dead. Yeah, that's right, said Zephod. I just haven't stopped moving yet. Now, where do I find Zarni Whoop? Well, sir, his office is on the 15th floor, but... But he's on an intergalactic cruise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do I get to him? The uh, newly installed Sirius Cybernetics Corporation Happy Vertical People Transporters are in the far corner, sir. But, sir, Zaphod was turning to go. He turned back. Yeah, he said. Can I ask why you want to see Mr. Zarni Whoop? Yeah, said Zaphod, who was unclear on this point himself. I told myself I had to. Come again, sir? Zaphod leaned forward conspiratorially. I just materialized out of thin air in one of your cafes, he said, as a result of an argument with the ghost of my great-grandfather. No sooner had I got there than my former self, the one that operated in my brain, popped into my head and said, Go see Zarniwoop. I have never heard of the cat. That is all I know, that and the fact that I've got to find the man who rules the universe. He paused and winked. Mr. Beeblebrox, sir, said the insect in awed wonder. You're so weird. You should be in movies. Yeah, said Zaphod, patting the thing on a glittering pink wing. And you, baby, you should be in real life. The insect paused for a moment to recover from its agitation and then reached out a tentacle to answer a ringing phone. A metal hand restrained it. Excuse me, said the owner of the metal hand in a voice that would have made an insect of more sentimental disposition collapse in tears. This was not such an insect, and it couldn't stand robots. Yes, sir, it snapped. Can I help you? I doubt it, said Marvin. Well, in that case, if you'll just excuse me. Six of the phones were now ringing. A million things awaited the insect's attention. No one can help me, intoned Marvin. Yes, sir, well, not that anyone's tried, of course. The restraining metal hand fell limply by Marvin's side. His head hung forward very slightly. Is that so? the insect said tartly. Well, hardly worth anyone's while to help a menial robot, is it? I'm sorry, sir, if... I mean, where's the percentage in being kind or helpful to a robot if it doesn't have any gratitude circuits? And you don't have any? said the insect, who didn't seem to be able to drag itself out of this conversation. 
I've never had occasion to find out, Marvin informed it. Listen, you miserable heap of maladjusted metal. Aren't you going to ask me what I want? The insect paused. Its long, thin tongue darted out and licked its eyes and darted back again. Is it worth it? it asked. Is anything? said Marvin immediately. What do you want? I'm looking for someone. Who? hissed the insect. Zaphod Beeblebrox, said Marvin. He's over there. The insect shook with rage. It could hardly speak. Then why did you ask me? it screamed. I just wanted someone to talk to, said Marvin. What? Pathetic, isn't it? With a grinding of gears, Marvin turned and trundled off. He caught up with Zaphod approaching the elevators. Zaphod spun around in astonishment. Hey, Marvin, he said. Marvin, how did you get here? Marvin was forced to say something which came very hard to him. I don't know, he said. But one moment I was sitting in your ship, feeling very depressed, and the next moment I was standing here feeling utterly miserable. An improbability field, I expect. Yeah, said Zaphod. I expect my great-grandfather sent you along to keep me company. Thanks a bundle, Grandad, he added to himself under his breath. So, how are you? he said aloud. Oh, fine, said Marvin, if you happen to like being me, which personally I don't. Yeah, yeah, said Zaphod as the elevator doors opened. Hello said the elevator sweetly. I am to be your elevator for this trip to the floor of your choice. I have been designed by the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation to take you, the visitor to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, into these offices. If you enjoy your ride, which will be swift and pleasurable, then you may care to experience some of the other elevators which have been recently installed in the offices of the Galactic Tax Department, Boobaloo Baby Foods, and the Syrian State Mental Hospital where many ex-Sirius Cybernetics Corporation executives will be delighted to welcome you on your visits, sympathy, and happy tales of the outside world. Yeah, said Zaphod, stepping into it. What else do you do besides talk? I go up, said the elevator. Or down. Good, said Zaphod. We're going up. Or down, the elevator reminded him. Yeah, okay, up, please. There was a moment of silence. Downs, very nice, suggested the elevator hopefully. Oh yeah? Super. Good, said Zaphod. Now, will you take us up? May I ask you, inquired the elevator in its sweetest, most reasonable voice, if you've considered all the possibilities that Down might offer you. 
Zaphod knocked one of his heads against the inside wall. He didn't need this, he thought to himself. This, of all things, he had no need of. He hadn't asked to be here. It was as if he was asked if he was asked at this moment where he would like to be, it would probably he would probably have said he would like to be lying on the beach with at least 50 beautiful women and a small team of experts working out new ways they could be nice to him, which was his usual reply. To this, he would have probably added something passionate on the subject of food. One thing he didn't want to be doing was chasing after the man who ruled the universe, who was only doing a job which he might as well keep at, I'm sorry, who was only doing a job which he might as well keep at, because if it wasn't him, it would only be someone else. Most of all, he didn't want to be standing in an office block arguing with an elevator. Like what other possibilities? he said wearily. Well, the voice trickled on like honey on biscuits. There's the basement, the microfiles, the, the heating system. Um, it paused. Nothing particularly exciting, it admitted, but they are alternatives. Holy Zarquan, muttered Zaphon. Did I ask for an existential elevator? He beat his fists against the wall. What's the matter with the thing? He spat. It doesn't want to go up, said Marvin simply. I think it's afraid. Afraid? said Zaphod. Of what? Heights? An elevator that's afraid of heights? No, said the elevator miserably. Of the future. The future? exclaimed Zaphod. What does the wretched thing want? A pension scheme? At that moment, a commotion broke out in the reception hall behind them. From the walls around them came the sound of suddenly very active machinery. Uh, we can all see into the future, whispered the elevator in what sounded like increasing terror. It's uh, part of our programming. Zaphod looked out of the elevator. An agitated crowd had gathered around the elevator area, pointing and shouting. Every elevator in the building was coming down very fast. He ducked back in. Marvin, he said, just get this elevator to go up, will you? We have got to get to Zarni Whoop. Why? said Marvin dolefully. I don't know, said Zaphod, but when I find him, he better have a very good reason for me wanting to see him. Modern elevators are strange and complex entities. The ancient electric winch and maximum capacity eight-persons jobs bear about as much relation to a serious cybernetics corporation happy vertical people transporter as a packet of mixed nuts does to the entire west wing of the Syrian state mental hospital. This is because they operate on the curious principle of defocused temporal perception. In other words, they have the capacity to see dimly into the immediate future, which enables the elevator to be on the right floor to pick you up even before you knew you wanted it. 
thus eliminating all the tedious chatting, relaxing, and making friends that people were previously forced to do whilst waiting for elevators. Not unnaturally, many elevators imbued with intelligence and precognition became terribly frustrated with the mindless business of going up and down, up and down, and experimented briefly with the notion of going sideways as a sort of existential protest. They demanded participation in the decision-making processes and finally took to squatting in basements sulking. An impoverished hitchhiker visiting any planets in the Sirius star system these days can pick up an easy money working as a counsellor for neurotic elevators. At the 15th floor, the elevator doors snapped open quickly. 15th, said the elevator, and remember, I'm only doing this because I like your robot. Zaphod and Marvin bundled out of the elevator, which instantly snapped its doors shut and dropped as fast as its mechanisms would take it. Zaphod looked around warily. The corridor was deserted and silent and gave no clue as to where Zani Whoop might be found. All the doors that led off to the corridor off the corridor were closed and unmarked. They were standing close to the bridge which led across from one tower of the building to the other. Through a large window, the brilliant sun of Ursa Minor Beta threw blocks of light in which danced small in, in which danced small specks of dust. A shadow flitted past momentarily. Left in the lurch by a lift, muttered Zaphod, who was feeling at his least jaunty. They both stood and looked in both directions. You know something? said Zaphod to Marvin. More than you can possibly imagine. I'm dead certain this building shouldn't be shaking said Zaphod. It was just a light tremor through the soles of his feet, and then another one. In the sunbeams the flecks of dust danced more vigorously. Another shadow flitted past. Zaphod looked at the floor. Either, he said, not very confidently, they've got some vibro system for toning up your muscles whilst you work, or... He walked across to the window and suddenly stumbled, because at that moment his Jujanta 200 superchromatic peril-sensitive sunglasses had turned utterly black. A large shadow flitted past the window with a sharp buzz. Zaphod ripped off his sunglasses, and as he did so, the building shook with a thunderous roar. He leapt to the window. Or, he said, this building is being bombed. Another roar cracked through the building. Who in the galaxy would want to bomb a publishing company? Asked Zaphod. But never heard Marvin's reply, because at that moment the building shook with another bomb attack. He tried to stagger back to the elevator. A pointless manoeuvre, he realised, but the only one that he could think of. Suddenly, at the end of the corridor leading at right angles from this one, he caught sight of a figure as it lunged into view. A man. The man saw him. Beeblebrox, over here! he shouted. 
Zaphod eyed him with distrust as another bomb blast rocked the building. Now, called Zaphod, Beeblebrack's over here. Who are you? A friend, shouted back the man. He ran towards Zaphod. Oh, yeah, said Zaphod. Anyone's, fr anyone's friend in particular, or just but generally well-disposed towards people? The man raced along the corridor, the floor bucking beneath his feet like an excited blanket. He was short, stocky, and weather-beaten, and his clothes looked as if they'd been twice around the galaxy and back with him, and back with him in them. Do you know, Zaphod shouted in his ear when he arrived, your building is being bombed. The man indicated his awareness. It suddenly stopped being light. Glancing round at the window to see why, Zaphod gaped as a huge, slug-like, gunmetal-green spacecraft clept, crept through the air past the building. Two more followed it. "'The government you deserted is out to get you, Zaphod,' hissed the man. "'They've sent a squadron of Frogstar fighters.' "'Frogstar fighters?' muttered Zaphod. Zarquan! You get the picture? What are Frogstar fighters? Zaphod was sure he'd heard someone talk about them when he was president, but he'd never paid too much attention to official matters. The man was pulling him back through a door. He went with him. With a searing whine, a small black spider-like object shot through the air and disappeared down the corridor. What was that? hissed Zaphod. Frogstar Scout Robot Class A out looking for you, said the man. Hey, yeah? Get down! From the opposite direction came a larger black spider-like object. It zapped past them. And that was? Uh, Frogstar uh, Scout Robot Class B out looking for you. And that, said Zaphod, as a third one seared through the air, a uh, Frogstar Scout Robot Class C out looking for you. Hey, chuckled Zaphod to himself. Pretty stupid robots, eh? From over the bridge came a massive rumbling hum. A gigantic black shape was moving over it from the opposite tower. The size and shape of a tank. Holy photon! What's that? breathed Zaphod. A tank, said the man. Frog Star Scout Robot Class D. Come to get you. Should we leave? I think we should. Marvin! called Zaphod. What do you want? Marvin rose from a pile of rubble further down the corridor and looked dejectedly at them. You see that robot coming towards us? Marvin looked at the gigantic black shape edging, forward, edging forwards towards them across the bridge. He looked down at his own small metal body. He looked back up at the tank. I suppose you want me to stop it, he said. Yeah. Whilst you save your skins. Yeah, yeah, said Zaphod. Get in there. 
Just so long, said Marvin, as I know where I stand. A man, the man tugged at Zaphod's arm, and Zaphod followed him off down the corridor. A point occurred to him about this. Where are we going? Zorny Whoop's office. Is this any time to be keeping an appointment? Come on! Quick slurp of tea time. Seven. Marvin stood at the end of the bridge corridor. He was not, in fact, a particularly small robot. His silver body gleamed in the dusty sunbeams and shook with the continual, um, sorry, yes, and shook with the continual barrage which the building was still undergoing. He did, however, look pitifully small as the gigantic black tank rolled to a halt in front of him. The tank examined him with a probe. The probe withdrew. Marvin stood there. Out of my way, little robot, growled the tank. I'm, af I'm afraid, whoops, <laughs> I'm afraid, said Marvin, that I have been left here to stop you. The probe extended again for a quick recheck. It withdrew. Again. You! Stop me! roared the tank. Go on! No, really, I have, said Marvin simply. What are you armed with? roared the tank in disbelief. Guess, said Marvin. The tank's engines rumbled. Its gears ground, molecule-sized electronic relays deep in its microbrain flipped backwards and forwards in consternation. Guess, said the tank. Zaphod and the as-yet-unnamed man lurched up one corridor, down a second and along a third. The building continued to rock and judder, and this puzzled Zaphod. If they wanted to blow the building up, why was it taking so long? With difficulty, they reached one of a number of totally anonymous unmarked doors and heaved at it. With a sudden jolt, it opened and they fell inside. All this way, thought Zaphod, all this trouble, all this not lying on the beach having a wonderful time, and what for? A single chair a single desk, and a single dirty ashtray in an undecorated office. The desk, apart from a bit of dancing dust and single revolutionary new form of paperclip, was empty. Where, said Zaphod, is Zarny Whoop? Feeling that his already tenuous grasp of the point of this whole exercise was beginning to slip. He's on an intergalactic cruise, said the man. Zaphod tried to size the man up. 
earnest type, he thought, not a barrel of laughs. He probably apportioned a fair whack of his time to running up and down heaving corridors, breaking down doors and making cryptic remarks in empty offices. Let me introduce myself, the man said. My name is Rooster and this is my towel. Hello, Rooster, said Zaphod. Hello, towel, he added, as Rooster held it out to him, held out to him a rather nasty old flowery towel. Not knowing what to do with it, Zaphod shook it by the corner. Out the window, one of the huge slug-like gunmetal green spaceships growled past. Yes, go on, said Marvin to the huge battle machine. You'll never guess. Um said the machine, vibrating with unaccustomed thought. Laser beams! Marvin shook his head solemnly. No, muttered the machine in its deep guttural rumble. Too obvious. Anti-matter ray? The machine said. Far too obvious admonished Marvin. Yes, grumbled the machine, somewhat abashed. How about an electron ram? Ooh, this was a new one to Marvin. What's that? he said. What of these? said the machine with enthusiasm. From its turret emerged a sharp prong which spat a single lethal blaze of light. Behind Marvin, a wall roared and collapsed as a heap of dust. The dust billowed briefly and then settled. No, said Marvin. Not one of those. Good though, is it? it? Very good, agreed Marvin. I know, said the Frogstar battle machine after another moment of consideration. You must have one of these new Xenthic restructuring destabilized Xenon admitters. Nice, are they? said Marvin. That's what you've got, said the machine in considerable awe. No, said Marvin. Oh! said the machine, disappointed. Then it must be! You're thinking along the wrong lines, said Marvin. You're failing to take things fairly in the relationship between men and uh, I know! said the battle machine. Is it? Is it? It tailed off into thought again. Just think, urged Marvin. They left me, an ordinary menial robot, to stop you, a gigantic heavy-duty battle machine whilst they ran off to save themselves. What do you think they would leave me with? Oh, uh, 
<sighs> muttered the machine in alarm. Oh, something pretty damn devastating, I ask. Expect. Expect, said Marvin. Oh, yes. Expect. I'll tell you what they gave me to protect myself with, shall I? Oh, yes. All right, said the battle machine, bracing itself. Nothing, said Marvin. There was a long, dangerous pause. Nothing, roared the battle machine. Nothing at all, intoned Marvin dismally. Not an electronic sausage. The machine heaved about with fury. And doesn't that just take the biscuit? It roared. Nothing! Hey, they just don't think, do they? And me, said Marvin in a soft, low voice, with this terrible pain in all the diodes down my left side. Makes you spit, doesn't it? Yes, agreed Martin, with feeling. Hell, that makes me angry, bellowed the machine. I think I'll smash that wall down. The electron ram stabbed out another searing blaze of light and took out the wall next to the machine. How do you think I feel? said Marvin bitterly. Just ran off and left you, didn't they? The machine thundered. Yes, said Marvin. I think I'll shoot down their bloody ceiling as well, raged the tank. It took out the ceiling of the bridge. That's very impressive, murmured Marvin. You ain't seen nothing yet, promised the machine. I could take out this floor too. No trouble. It took out the floor too. How's bells? The machine roared as it plummeted 15 stories and smashed itself to bits on the ground below. What a depressingly stupid machine, said Marvin and trudged away. Body. So, do we just sit here or what? said Zaphod angrily. What do these guys out here want? You, Beeblebrox, said Rooster. They're going to take you to the Frogstar, the most totally evil world in the galaxy. Oh, yeah? said Zaphod. They'll have to come and get me first. Uh, they have come and got you, said Rooster. Look out the window. Zaphod looked and gaped. The ground's going away, he gasped. Where are they taking the ground? They're taking the building, said Rooster. We're airborne. Clouds streaked past the office window. 
Out in the open air again, Zaphod could see the ring of dark green frog starfighters around the uprooted tower of the building. A network of force beams radiated in from them and held the tower in a firm grip. Zaphod shook his head in perplexity. What have I done to deserve this? he said. I walk into a building and they take it away. It's not what you've done that they're worried about, said Rooster. It's what you're going to do. Well, don't I get a say in that? You did, years ago. You better hold on, we're in for a fast and bumpy journey. If I ever meet myself, said Zaphod, I will hit myself so hard, I won't know what's hit me. Marvin trudged in through the door, looked at Zaphod accusingly, slumped in a corner, and switched himself off. On the bridge of the Heart of Gold, all was silent. Arthur stared at the rack in front of him and thought. He caught Trillian's eyes as she looked at him inquiringly. He looked back at the rack. Finally, he saw it. He picked up five small plastic squares and laid them on the board that lay just in front of the rack. The five squares had on them the five letters, E, X, Q, U, and I. He laid them next to the letters, S, I, T, E. Exquisite, he said. On a triple word score, scores rather a lot, I'm afraid. The ship bumped and scattered some of the letters for the nth time. Trillian sighed and started to sort them out again. Up and down the silent corridors echoed Ford Prefect's feet as he stalked the ship, thumping dead instruments. Why did the ship keep shaking, he thought? Why did it rock and sway? Why could he not found, find out where they were? Where, basically, were they? The left-hand tower of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy offices streaked through interstellar space at a speed never equalled either before or since by any other office block in the universe. In a room halfway up it, Zaphod Beeblebrox strode angrily. Rooster sat on the edge of the desk, doing some routine towel maintenance. Hey, where did you say this building was flying to? demanded Zaphod. The Frogstar, said Rooster, the most totally evil place in the universe. Do they have food there? said Zaphod. Food? You're going to the Frogstar and you're worried about whether they got food? Without food, I may not make it to the Frogstar. Out of the window they could see nothing but the flickering light of the force beams and vague green streaks which were presumably the distorted shape of the Frogstar fighters. At this speed, space itself was invisible and indeed unreal. Here, suck this, said Rooster, offering Zaphod his towel. Zaphod stared at him as if he expected a cuckoo to leap out of his forehead on a small spring. 
It's soaked in nutrients, explained Rooster. What are you? A messy eater or something? asked Zaphod. The yellow stripes are high in protein, the green ones have vitamin B and C complexes, the little pink flowers contain wheat germ extract. Zaphod took it and looked at it in amazement. What are the brown stains? he asked. Barbecue sauce, said Rooster, for when I get sick of wheat germ. Zaphod sniffed it doubtfully. Even more doubtfully, he sucked a corner. He spat it out again. Oh, God! he stated. Yes, said Rooster, when I've had to suck that end, I usually need to suck the other end a little bit too. Why? asked Zaphod suspiciously. What's in that? Antidepressants, said Rooster. I tell, you know, said Zaphod, handing it back. Rooster took it back from him, swung himself off the desk, walked around it, sat in the chair, and put his feet up. Beeblebrox, he said, sticking his hands behind his head. Have you any idea what's going to happen to you on the frog? Hmm. They're going to feed me? hazarded Zaphod, hopefully. They're going to feed you, said Rooster, into the total perspective vortex. Zaphod had never heard of this. He believed that he had, he had heard of all of the fun things in the galaxy, so he assumed that the total perspective vortex was not fun. He asked what it was. Only, said Rooster, the most savage psychic torture a sentient being can undergo. Zaphod nodded a resigned nod. So, he said, no food, huh? Listen, said Rooster urgently, you can kill a man, destroy his body, break his spirit, but only in the total perspective vortex can annihilate a, can totally annihilate a man's soul. The treatment lasts seconds, but the effects last the rest of your life. You ever had a pangalactic goggle blaster? asked Zaphod sharply. This is worse. Whoo, free owl, admitted Zaphod, much impressed. Any idea why these guys might want to do this to me? He added a moment later. They believe it will be the best way of destroying you forever. They know what you're after. Could they drop me a note and let me know as well? You know, said Rooster, you know, Beeblebrax, you want to meet the man who rules the universe. Can he cook? said Zaphod. On reflection, he added, I doubt if he can. If he could cook a good meal, he wouldn't worry about the rest of the universe. I want me to cook. Rooster sighed heavily. What are you doing here anyway? demanded Zaphod. What's all this got to do with you? 
I'm just one of those who planned this thing, along with Zarniwoop, along with Yudin Vranks, along with your great-grandfather, and along with you, Beeblebrox. Me? Yes, you. I was told you had changed. I didn't realize how much. But I am here to do one job, and I will do it before I leave you. What job, man? What are you talking about? I will do it before I leave you. Rooster lapsed into an impenetrable silence. Zaphod was terribly glad. The air around the second planet of the Frogstar system was stale and unwholesome. The dank winds that swept continually over its surface swept over salt flats, dried up marshland, tangled and rotting vegetation, and the crumbling remains of ruined cities. No life moved across its surface. The ground, like that of many planets in this part of the galaxy, had long been deserted. The howl of the wind was desolate enough as it gusted through the old decaying houses of the cities. It was more desolate as it whipped around the bottoms of the tall black towers that swayed uneasily here and there about the surface of this world. At the top of these towers lived large colonies of large, scraggy, evil-smelling birds, the sole survivors of the civilization that once lived there. The howl of the wind was at its most desolate, however, when it passed over a pimple of a place set in the middle of a wide-grade plain on the outskirts of the largest of the abandoned cities. This pimple of a place was the thing that had earned this word the world the reputation of being the most totally evil place in the galaxy. From without, it was simply a steel dome about thirty feet across. From within, it was something more monstrous than the mind can comprehend. About a hundred yards or so away, and separated from it by a pockmarked and blasted stretch of the most barren land imaginable, was what could probably have to be described as a landing pad of sorts. That is to say that, 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 is to say that scattered over a largish area were the ungainly hulks of two or three dozen crash-landed buildings. Flitting over and around these buildings was a mind. A mind that was waiting for something. The mind directed its attention to the air, and before very long a distant speck appeared, surrounded by a ring of smaller specks. The larger speck was the left-hand tower of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy office building, descending through the stratosphere of Frogstar World B. As it descended, Rooster suddenly broke the long, uncomfortable silence that had grown up between the two men. He stood up and gathered his towel into a bag. He said, Beeblebrox, I will now do the job I was sent here to do. Zaphod looked up at him from where he was sitting in a corner, sharing unspoken thoughts with Marvin. Yeah, he said. The building will shortly be landing. When you leave the building, do not go out of the door, said Rooster. Go out of the window. Good luck, he added, and walked out of the door 
disappearing from Zaphod's life as mysteriously as he had entered it. Zaphod leapt up and tried the door, but Rooster had already locked it. He shrugged and returned to the corner. Two minutes later, the building crash-landed amongst all the other wreckage. Its escort of Frogstar fighters deactivated their force beams and soared off into the air again, bound for Frogstar World A, an altogether much more congenial spot. They never landed on Frogstar World B. No one did. No one ever walked on its surface other than the intended victims of the Total Perspective Vortex. Zaphod was badly shaken by the crash. He lay for a while in the silent, dusty rubble to which most of the room had been reduced. He felt that he was at the lowest ebb he had ever reached in his life. He felt bewildered. He felt lonely. He felt unloved. Eventually, he felt he ought to get whatever it was over with. He looked around the cracked and broken room. The wall had split around the doorframe, and the door hung open. The window, by some miracle, was closed and unbroken. For a while he hesitated, then he thought that if his strange and recent companion had been through all that... Sorry, if... For a while he hesitated, then he thought that if his strange and recent companion had been through all that he had been through just to tell him what he had told him, then there must be a good reason for it. With Marvin's help, he got the window open. Outside it, the cloud of dust aroused by the crash and the hulks of the other buildings with which this one was surrounded effectively prevented Zaphod from seeing anything of the world outside. Not that this concerned him unduly. His main concern was what he saw when he looked down. Zani Whoop's office was on the 15th floor. The building had landed at a tilt of about 45 degrees, but still the descent looked heart-stopping. Eventually, stung by the continuous series of contemptuous looks that Marvin appeared to be giving him, he took a deep breath and clambered out onto the steeply inclined side of the building. Marvin followed him, and together they began to crawl slowly and painfully down the fifteen floors that separated them from the ground. As he crawled, the dank air and dust choked his lungs, his eyes smarted, and the terrifying distance down made his head spin. The occasional remark from Marvin of the order of, This is the sort of thing you life forms enjoy, is it? I asked merely for information did little to improve his state of mind. About halfway down the side of the shattered building, they stopped to rest. It seemed to Zaphod, as he lay there, panting with fear and exhaustion, that Marvin seemed a mite more cheerful than usual. Eventually he realised that this wasn't so. The robot just seemed cheerful in comparison with his own mood. A large, scraggy black bird came flapping through the slowly settling clouds of dust and, stretching down its scrawny legs, landed on an inclined window ledge a couple of yards from Zaphod. It folded its ungainly wings and teetered awkwardly on its perch. 
Its wingspan must have been something like six feet, and its head and neck seemed curiously large for a bird. Its face was flat, the beak underdeveloped, and halfway along the underside of its wings, the vestige of something hand-like could clearly be seen. In fact, it looked almost human. It turned its heavy eyes on Zaphod and clicked its beak in a desultory fashion. Go away, said Zaphod. Okay, muttered the bird morosely and flapped off into the dust again. Zaphod watched its department in bewilderment. Did that bird just talk to me? he asked Marvin nervously. He was quite prepared to believe the alternative explanation, that he was in fact hallucinating. Yes, confirmed Marvin. Poor souls, said a deep ethereal voice in Zaphod's ear. Twisting round violently to find the source of the voice nearly caused Zaphod to fall off the building. He grabbed savagely at a protruding window as at a protruding window fitting and cut his hand on it. He hung on, breathing heavily. The voice had no visible source whatsoever. There was no one there. Nevertheless, it spoke again. A tragic history behind them, you know. A terrible blight. Zaphod looked quite wildly about. The voice was deep and quiet. In other circumstances, it would even be described as soothing. There is, however, nothing soothing about being addressed by a disembodied voice out of nowhere, particularly when you are, like Zaphod Beeblebrox, not at your best and hanging from a ledge eight stories up a crashed building. Hey, er he stammered. Shall I tell you their story? inquired the voice quietly. Hey, uh, who are you? panted Zaphod, and uh, where are you? Later then, perhaps, murmured the voice. I am Gagravar. I am the custodian of the total perspective vortex. Why can't I see? You will find your progress down the building greatly facilitated, the voice lifted, if you move about two yards to your left. Why don't you try it? Zaphod looked and saw a series of short horizontal grooves leading all the way down the side of the building. Great he shifted himself across to them. Why don't I see you again at the bottom? said the voice in his ear. And as it spoke, it faded. Hey, called out Zaphod, where, where are you? It'll only take you a couple of minutes, said the voice very faintly. Marvin, said Zaphod earnestly to the robot squatting dejectedly next to him. Dinner. Did a voice just? Yes, replied Marvin tersely. Zaphod nodded. He took out his peril-sensitive sunglasses again. 
They were completely black, and by now quite badly scratched by the unexpected metal object in his pocket. He put them on. He would find his way down the building more comfortably if he didn't actually have to look at what he was doing. Minutes later, he clambered over the ripped and mangled foundations of the building, and once more removing his sunglasses, he dropped to the ground. Marvin joined him a moment or so later and lay face down in the dust and the rubble, from which position he seemed disinclined to move. Ah, there you are, said the voice suddenly in Zaphod's ear. Excuse me leaving you like that. It's just I have a terrible head for heights. At least, it added wistfully, I did have a terrible head for heights. Zaphod looked around slowly and carefully, just to see if he had missed something which might be the source of the voice. All he saw, however, was the dust, the rubble, and the towering hulks of the encircling buildings. Hey, er, why, why can't I see you? he said. Why, why aren't you here? I am here, said the voice slowly. My body wanted to come, but it's a bit busy at the moment. Things to do, people to see. After what seemed like a sort of ethereal sigh, it added, You know how it is with bodies. Zaphod wasn't sure about this. I thought I did, he said. I only hope it's gone in for a rest cure continued the voice. The way it's been living recently, it must be on its last elbows. Elbows? said Zaphod. Don't you mean last legs? The voice said nothing for a while. Zaphod looked around uneasily. He didn't know if it had gone, or was still there, or what it was doing. Then the voice spoke again. So you are to be put into the vortex, yes? Uh, well, said Zaphod, with a very poor attempt at nonchalance, there's cats in uh, no hurry, you know. I can just slouch about and take in a look at the local scenery, you know. Have you seen the local scenery? asked the voice of Gagravar. Uh, no. Zaphod clambered over the rubble and rounded the corner of one of the wrecked buildings that was obscuring his view. He looked out at the landscape of Frogstar World B. Ah, okay, he said. I'll just sort of uh, slouch about, you know? No, said Gagravar. The vortex is ready for you now. You must come. Follow me. Er, uh, yeah, said Zaphod. And how am I meant to do that? I'll hum for you, said Gagravar. Follow the humming. A soft, keening sound drifted through the air. A pale, sad sound that seemed to be without any kind of focus. It was only by listening very carefully 
that Zaphod was able to detect the direction from which it was coming. Slowly, dazedly, he stumbled off in its wake. After all, what else was there to do? That's where we'll leave it. <laughs> it's 22 minutes past 10. I think we've had a good read, and it's a good pop point, a good spot to finish it, I think. Thank you all for joining. We will continue at the same time next Sunday. Um, do spread the word. Um, I do appreciate all of you guys pitching up and, uh, and joining in the fun. It's a huge pleasure for me to do this. Um, so, yeah, uh, same time, same channel. Sunday, the whatever it is, 25th, 25th thing, you know, next weekend. Okay, 2100 CEST, 2000 BST. Thank you so much for joining me. Bye-bye, people. Look after yourselves. Stay home. Stay safe. Um, socially distance. Be sensible. Don't believe the bullshit that's coming out of America about everything being safe again. It ain't yet. Um, look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Be hoopy fruits. <laughs>